0: David and Hannah, that's great, um, if, I'm sorry, okay. uh, if you want to keep that passage there uh, open in front of you, uh, you'll find that really helpful, I think, just to, to follow along. Uh, And Jacob helped us last week, uh, looking through John chapter 9, we came back to our sort of uh, journey through John's gospel. And just before we sort of come to this passage uh, specifically, I thought maybe it's worth just reminding ourselves what is a gospel? What's the purpose of this writing here? Because it it helps inform each of these stories, each of these events and moments that uh, John, our particular author here, picks out for us. Gospels are not just straight biographies. They're accounts that want to answer four primary questions. Firstly, who is Jesus? That's sort of the subtext really to so much of these different events is people asking, sometimes openly, explicitly, but even when it's not open and explicitly, it's it's what's going on as the cogs are turning for people. Who is Jesus? Secondly, what did he come to do? And time and time again, some of the questioning that comes to Jesus is about what does he come to do? What is his purpose? Thirdly, who did he come to do it for? Who is his target? And fourthly, how do I become part of it? That's what some of the people in these stories and moments and encounters are really sort of asking is, well, how do I actually sort of get in on this? And it's certainly what John expects us to be asking as we hear his account of Jesus's life. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? Who did he come to do it for? And how do I become part of it? And John has answered that in his gospel account uh, by giving seven signs that Jesus did that say of who he is, what he came to do, who he came to do it for, and how we become part of it. Seven particular pieces of teaching, seven discourses. He shows both the words and the works of Jesus, and not all of them. He tells us towards the end that if uh, not all the books in the world could contain everything that Jesus did, but he's given a, a sort of editor's choice of some of the ones he thinks are most sort of pertinent for us. And so now we get Jesus' we get the sixth of... The sixth of, of five that being the healing of the blind man that Jacob spoke to us about last week. And so this story in and of itself is going to answer those four questions. Who is what he came to do, what he He came came to to do it for, and how we become part of it. And Jesus tells this story directly responding to what has just happened. It may not seem like it, it may seem like a strange tangent for John to go on, really, that he stitches the story of him healing the blind man and then the sort of disbelief of the religious leaders and the inquisition that goes on after that, and then Jesus going straight into talking about being a shepherd. How does that kind of come together? And yet, We'll find that it does. He's healed this man born blind. The blind man has put his faith in Jesus. The religious leaders have rejected Jesus's legitimacy. In fact, they want to force the blind man, didn't they, into a retraction of it? They keep coming to him and asking him, and his parents as well, because they want him to change his story, and he doesn't, because he can't. And so we've had this strange thing that the blind man has had to explain for the religious leaders what has happened. And they just don't like it, do they? And so now, the question is, what will Jesus say about himself? Because in that last interaction, Jesus is, is not there. It's left to the man healed to say it. So what will Jesus have to say about himself? And yet, why this narrative? Why, why, why does it make sense to John to go from the story of healing a blind man to Jesus speaking of being a shepherd? Well, John has set his stall out that this book aims to convince you that Jesus is God, not just good. He tells us that in chapter 20, that he's written this so that you may believe that you may have eternal life. The religious leaders reject this claim. That's clear already, isn't it? in many different instances, they reject this claim. Despite his teachings, despite his miraculous works, they believe he's an imposter. That's the sum of it, isn't it? They don't believe that what he says about himself is true. He's not God. Jesus tells this story now to show he cannot be an imposter, but he is the true, the good shepherd. And Jesus uses this imagery not just because it's familiar to his audience... It's not just that this is something that people can connect with easily, although in an agrarian society that is very much dependent upon living off of the land in this way, of course, it is more familiar. But Jesus is doing something more than just being able to contextualize, being able to speak in a way in which his people understand there's something significant to what Jesus is doing. In fact, the shepherd imagery is used throughout the Bible to describe leaders and even to describe God's leadership. So Jesus is saying something very significant of his identity. This isn't just a little sort of nice tangent. And here's the main point of it as we get into this now. Jesus loves you with an almost illogical, reckless, confusing, and certainly undeserved love of a shepherd who would even leave 99 sheep to go and find you that one lost sheep. Turn with me there to those first six verses there, and what we'll see is this uh, story that Jesus gives, this uh, manner of speech, as it's put. It's not quite a parable, uh, but it's a turn of phrases, certainly an image that he's using. And we see the shepherd, the flock, and the impostor. As I say, the question that's being asked underneath is the reason why Jesus would give this piece of teaching is that they're asking: Is Jesus legit? Is he really who he says he is? Is he a shepherd? Or is he an imposter? And how does Jesus answer this? Well, look at those first three verses there. You see, he answers this firstly by saying that Jesus's entrance reveals his identity. Jesus's entrance reveals his identity. Jesus enters as a shepherd, not as an imposter. So we can trust him. As I say, truly, truly, I say to you, he who doesn't enter the sheep by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's entered by the front door. He's not a thief. He's not a robber. He's the shepherd. In fact, the word that he uses here, thief and robber, it's, it's really one word. It's sneak thief. It's the same word that's used for Judas later along in chapter 12. We sneak to places where we don't belong, don't we? Sneak to the snack cupboard. Sneak downstairs when you're supposed to be in bed. Sneak into the back of the cinema if you've ever been so uh, unregenerate as to have done that. You sneak into the garden to fetch your ball. You sneak out. To the party you weren't supposed to be at. It's about belonging. Jesus doesn't come sneaking in. There's, there's been nothing hidden about Jesus's life and ministry. He'll say this later on, what are you arresting me for now? You've, he, you've heard me teach in the temple. You, you've heard me in the synagogue. You've heard me in the streets. There's been nothing hidden about this. It's this been right up front and central for you. He's not a sneak thief. He's not a robber. He has nothing to hide. He belongs around his sheep. The one who enters through the front door is the shepherd of the sheep. They're his sheep. It's his pen. He's taking responsibility here. And for him, we're told, the gatekeeper opens. It's not just that he's able to because he belongs there, that he can just walk in. He doesn't have to climb in over the fence, over the wall. but He can walk in through the front door. He has the key. It's that the gatekeeper opens to him because he's known, he's trusted, he's approved. He belongs. So the guard will let him in. Jesus' entrance reveals his identity. But secondly, Jesus is the shepherd that the sheep know. He's not an imposter because the sheep know him. Jesus' people follow him because they recognize his voice. There, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls and he leads them out. Jesus calls his people together and he leads them out. And they will do so because they recognize his voice because he's known he's not an imposter. He is the shepherd. And the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. In this day, the way in which shepherding would work, you'd often have a number of flocks who would all sort of stay in the same pen. If you like, it's a sort of sense of reducing your sort of rent and rates that you would sort of put them all together. And sheep are very stupid in many ways. But the one thing that they have and they have over certain other animals like goats, for example, who might often be put actually in the same sort of uh, pen is sheep can recognize a voice. And in fact, actually what they can do is recognize the voice of their shepherd over other shepherds. It's not just that they're responsive to human voice and commands. It's that they can recognize the shepherd who has been leading them. The sheep respond and follow the shepherd because they know the shepherd. He has been with them. A stranger they will not follow. An imposter can't try as they may lead a sheep because the sheep won't respond to a voice that they don't know. They can tell them enough times it won't do anything if they don't recognize the voice, if they don't trust the shepherd. So there's the story, the shepherd, the flock, the imposter. Now Jesus explains it for us here. Look in verses 7 to 18 here with me. Jesus again said to them, verse 7 here, and that tells us something really simple. They haven't got it. Tells them again, they haven't got it. It's not been unclear, but people are dull. They don't get it. Jesus says as much, Matthew chapter 13. He's asked why it is that he speaks in parables. And he quotes Isaiah 6. And he talks about, I speak in this way so that those who are blind don't see, those who are deaf don't hear and don't understand. He's speaking to a people who are not lacking in information, but are dull. And he gives us two images here now. And it gets confusing because he's going to give us two images in the same story that he is. He tells us firstly here, verse 7, I am the door. Jesus is the entrance to the kingdom, to the people of God. He says this in a different way, a few chapters on in chapter 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that nobody comes to the Father except through him and another way of saying it here is to say i am the door nobody comes in to the people of god nobody becomes part of this and think of those four questions that the gospel is answering number four that how do i get in on this how do i become part of this well through jesus i am the door but he gives us this second image doesn't he i am verse 11 the good shepherd Jesus is the shepherd who cares for the people of God as its leader, as a protector, as a provider. I am the good shepherd. Look at verses 9 and 10 there with me. Firstly, we'll see the blessings of his shepherding. We'll see how the blessings were won and who the blessings are for. Look at verses 9 to 10 there, we see the blessings of his shepherding, and really it's summarized in verse 10 here for us, and then we we get it spelled out in a couple of particular ways, but it's summarized for us in this wonderful statement here, verse 10, that the thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, but that Jesus has come that they may have life and have it abundantly. What is the blessing of his shepherding, that all the other blessings could come underneath that he brings life. And how does he do that? Well, look at verse 9 here with me. Firstly, he does that by uh, the the one who follows his shepherding here will be saved. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. He'll go in and out and find pasture. He'll be saved. And this is something different here, isn't it? Jesus is saying here, the only way in which you can be saved, you know, if you can find true freedom... This will become an important theme a little later on. The way that you find real freedom, real life, is through Jesus. You won't find safety, security, life, through simply building bigger walls, by putting some barbed wire on the top of the walls. You'll find it only by finding the shepherd, who leads you in to life. And yet we know that experience of attempting to try to find safety, security, life by simply building bigger walls around ourselves. We think sometimes, don't we, that if we can only just keep certain people out of our lives, everything will be fine. Everything will be neat, will be ordered. I can just cut those people out. We think, you know, if only I keep up my end of the rope and if I eat right and I exercise right and everything else, I'll, I'll definitely be healthy. I'll keep my health, and that's most important to me. Or if I keep a sort of tight order on my world, nothing can ever go wrong. I'll never feel anxious, so long as I can keep this tight hold and order on everything around me. Or if I could just keep a close guard on on who I'm open with, on who I make myself vulnerable to, then I'll never be hurt. And yet we all know that it doesn't quite work like that, does it? And yet we try, don't we? But life is found in the good shepherd who'll be saved but more than that it's more than a future expectation of being saved it's that we'll go in and out and find pasture that there's this freedom of movement and security and provision of needs that he nourishes and he nurtures this flock that there's a present reality to it he is a good shepherd everybody in life has a shepherd Everybody has somebody that they look to to lead them, to shape their thinking, even those who are not religious. It could be a self-help guru, it could be a kind of political figure or activist, it could be a religious figure, it could be a writer or a social commentator or a YouTuber, someone whose words that you hang on And Israel, much like us, had experienced a string of bad shepherds. The kind of shepherds who don't really care for the sheep. The kind of shepherds who use the sheep. Who exploit them. Who abuse them, perhaps. Who use the sheep to serve themselves. The world knows this kind of experience song Cult of Personality by Live Colour, speaks of this. It says, I know your anger. I know your dreams. I've been everything you want to be. I'm the cult of personality. I sell the things you need to be. I'm the smiling face on your TV. I'm the cult of personality. I exploit you. Still, you love me. I tell you one and one makes three. I'm the cult of personality. We know those shepherds that use their sheep for their own ends. And yet into that, Jesus is the good shepherd He leads us to life. We'll be saved. That will be those who can go in and out and find pasture with him. That's the blessings of his shepherding. Secondly, we see how the blessings were won. And again, it can be summarized in one uh, sentence here in verse 11. And then it's fleshed out a little more. The good shepherd, verse 11 here, lays down his life for the sheep. How is Jesus a good shepherd compared to the many models of bad shepherding that we know in which shepherds use their sheep for their own ends to serve themselves, to build themselves up, to feed themselves at the expense of the sheep? How are they contrasted more than anything? Well, here the good shepherd gives his life that the sheep may live. And on the contrary, the hired hand takes the path of least resistance. They don't sacrifice because they don't care for the sheep. Whilst Jesus does. Once worked with a girl called Nikki, who was wonderful, um, an amazing character. But simultaneously, the worst and the best worker like we had, because she was such a hired hand. She was wonderful and a great personality. And it's probably for that that that's saved her getting the sack often. But she was such a hired hand. And you'll know it perhaps in your jobs too, of that person who, and there's one part of me that admires it and wishes that maybe I could feel a bit more like that, but who is not emotionally invested in a job at all. Like five o'clock comes, she was already ready at 10 to five. She's out the building. She does not think about the place again until she's back there again. The time that we are working, probably of a day of seven, eight hours, she's working for like two to three hours of it. The rest of it, she would be shopping for clothes. She'd be trying to sort of navigate the impracticalities of her ridiculous nail extensions um, and wondering whether sort of much like a fence panel, two coats of fake tan was enough fake tan because she didn't want to look pasty when she was going out. She was terrible. And yet when she wanted to, could be brilliant at the job too, but she was a hired hand. She was not invested in it at all. And like I say, part of me wishes I could be a bit more like that. And yet, no, it's not good, is it? Because what it probably really says is you need to find a job you do care about, you do do love, that you do want to take some ownership and investment in. But here Jesus is no hired hand. He's not punching in and punching out. He's not having a day where he phones it in He cares for the sheep. He gives his life for the sheep. He sacrifices himself, his own good, for the good of the flock. How can he give these blessings? Well, firstly, he sacrifices himself here. But secondly, he can give them because of his relationship to the father. Look at verse 14, that the father knows me and I know the father. His relation to the Father and his approval by the Father means that he can dish out those blessings. It's possible through Jesus' relation to the Father, as well as his love and his care for ye. And then thirdly, we see specifically how Jesus sacrifices in order to bring us these blessings. Verse fifteen here I laid down my life for the sheep. The blessings for the sheep are one at the cost of the shepherd culminates in his sacrificial death he brings us the blessing of his shepherding which is life he wins it by sacrifice and then thirdly we see who these blessings are for look at verse 14 to 16 there with me and we see that the gifts of Jesus shepherding are for those who are part of his flock and that might sound like a really obvious sort of stupid thing to say perhaps It is, but maybe what I'm trying to get at here for you is that there are some who are not part of his flock and Jesus has not gone to the ends of his sacrificial death for those who are not part of his flock. I know my own and my own know me. So the question left somewhat unanswered at this point is, well, how do I get in on this then? And listen to how... Jesus picks this up, verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that is not Jewish. Jesus has a global vision and a global mission here. But as far as they're thinking, that's a strange thought for many of them, to think that actually there would be those who would be part of this who are not ethnically Jewish, who are different to us. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. He finds his sheep. He comes to fetch you. I must bring them also. How do you get in on it? He comes to find you. He comes knocking at the door. He picks you up. I lay down my life. So it's verse 17 here. And look at Jesus, uh, what he does here. It is suffering here. Firstly, it's voluntary. I lay down my life. If Jesus secures these blessings for us, this life in all its fullness through his sacrificial death, that sacrificial death, that suffering is voluntary. I lay down my life. But secondly, it's temporary. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus' suffering is voluntary, it's also temporary. It's how we can have confidence in the blessings that he wins. But now look at this reaction. Look at the reaction that he gets here, verses 20 to 21. Look at the confusion and division in the city. Some here just outright reject him still, others are confused. Some say he has a demon and is insane. In fact, actually that's the same verdict that his family have given that he's insane. That is in Mark chapter three, verse twenty one, we hear that his family were saying he's he's out of his mind. We need to bring him home. He's insane. He's not good or God, he's just simply insane. He's saying things he doesn't realise what he's saying. He can't, surely. He's an imposter. Or for those saying he's demon-possessed, well, if, if he has any power, if this story even is true of the man being healed of his blindness, he gets his power from the dark side. And yet some are confused because they say here, verse 21, these aren't the words of one oppressed by a demon. This is not the kind of way, the kind of clarity that someone oppressed by a demon has. And can a demon open the eyes of the blind? The words and the works here that John has written to us to convince us that Jesus is the Christ, that we might believe, that we might have eternal life, the words and the works, they suggest he's not an imposter. But we're not quite yet at the place of knowing what to do with that. Then look as they now check his identity further. Again, they're still on the same issue here. Um, it's guaranteed that at least once a week, uh, I will have a phone call from a call centre asking if I'm Sandra, uh, and if I'm not, you know, where is Sandra? Because Sandra is registered on this phone number. And every time we have this sort of same conversation, and perhaps I ask a somewhat stupid question, I say, well, does it sound like you found Sandra? No, Sandra isn't known here. And we have the same conversation about how I'm not Sandra, this Sandra doesn't exist. And yet... I will have the same phone call the next week, at least once, where we'll go through all of that identity check again. And Jesus here has told people very clearly who he is. There's no lack of that conversation. They just won't accept what it is that they're hearing. And yet they'll check it again. We're told here that the Feast of Dedication is the time in which this takes place. And that Jesus was walking in the temple... uh, In the colonnade of Solomon. Uh, This feast of dedication was an important time. I said earlier on that freedom was an important theme. Jesus shows how actually you find freedom, true life through knowing him the good shepherd, not simply through sort of building up your own sort of self protection uh, around yourself. The feast of dedication was all about freedom. The Feast of the Dedication was a relatively sort of new festival at this point. It happened somewhere between the period of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, in the second century uh, BC, in the Near East, in the region of which Israel is in, Syria were the global superpower. And in 167 BC, their ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, tried to enforce a sort of uniform religion across the empire as empires often want to do. Rome will attempt to do that later, and others, too, will try to do that. It is just easier to manage people when they're all thinking uh, and expressing the same things. Now, in Israel, how this practically sort of makes an effect for them is that Antiochus Epiphanes attempts to put up, and does put up, uh, an image of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. And this understandably causes sort of outrage, and it's seen as a desecration of the temple. And so Judas Maccabeus helps lead an uprising amongst the people to try and stand up to the Syrian uh, Empire and to Antiochus Epiphanes, which eventually is successful around three years later in 164 BC. And so the temple was reconsecrated in an eight-day celebration that they had, and it becomes an event that marks their national freedom. And so the timing of this inquisition of Jesus has a clear implication. The implication is, here's what Judas did for us. He brought us freedom. He's had this whole re-tem- temple re-cleanse. We can come back here and be who we were made to be, to have freedom. He saved us from a wicked, pagan, occupying force by leading a revolt. And, to use a popular idiom, taking back control. You say you're the Christ, but what are you going to do about the Romans? What are you going to do about the evil pagan occupying force that is stopping us from expressing ourselves and living as we were called to be? If you're really the Christ, will you not at least be able to do what Judas has done for us? That's the implication, isn't it? How long will you keep us in suspense then, they say? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus has told them. So what are they looking for? What do they feel that they haven't been told plainly? What they feel they haven't been told plainly is, where's the call to revolt? Where, Jesus, are you telling us? Jesus has said, as he's got up and read in Nazareth, as as the scroll of Isaiah has been there, talking about the servant of the Lord upon whom the spirit is on, and he said, in your hearing this is fulfilled, but he said it not at the point of which it's talked about this sort of national revolt and the return to prosperity and freedom. He said it at the point of, I come to bring good news to the poor, sight to the blind, freedom to captives, liberty to the oppressed. Well, okay, Jesus, but where's the rallying cry? What are you going to do? Is this just talk? Are you him? Tell us plainly. And yet, Jesus doesn't answer. You see that? verse 25 i told you and you don't believe the problem is no lack of information it's not that jesus has spoken a confusing manner and the question isn't genuine what the people really want is jesus to say something that they can have him killed for they're not ever going to believe that he's the christ that's not ever going to happen. They're not genuine seekers. They hope that he'll say something that will be a smoking gun. This will be the thing that we can take, and we can finally be rid of him. Why don't they believe? Well, oh, Jesus reflects on that. Look at verse 26. Here. You don't believe. He said, I've told you, and you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not part of my flock. That may seem really obvious and a bit circular. You don't believe because you're not part of the flock. And look at the challenge that's there in it. You're not part of my flock. You're not part of these blessings that we've spoken of because you're not. How dissatisfying an answer is that? How infuriating is that? You're not because you're not. It's about Jesus' election, his decision, not theirs. Be worth you perhaps looking a little later on at Ezekiel chapter 34 and reading that description here that it surely is in Jesus' mind as it speaks of the bad shepherds that they've experienced and the good shepherd that is to come. Let me read some of it for you, because it will make sense of some of what is going on here in this encounter. The word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I'll require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them into their own land and I'll feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I'll feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I'll bring back the strayed, I'll bind up the injured, and I'll strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I'll destroy, I will feed them in justice. may seem as though Jesus is not answering their question, and yet he is. Because in that shepherd imagery is the imagery of the sent one from God, the one who comes to call together his people, to lead his people, to serve and to save his people. And look there between the shepherd and the sheep, there's this recognition and relationship. How do you know whether you're in? Well, here's one way recognition and relationship. My sheep hear my voice, recognize the voice of Jesus in amongst the crowd. And yet there's more to it. I know them, verse 27, and they follow me. There's this relationship of sheep to shepherd. And then secondly, you see salvation and security here. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus gives a guarantee to this, like a guarantee loan. There's an undersigner who guarantees these gifts. My father who's given them to me, verse 29, is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You can have confidence in the Son, the shepherd, because of who his dad is. They check his identity, and in a roundabout way, Jesus says once again, he's the Son of God. He's not just good, he's God. Lastly, you see the reaction again. he's wanted dead or alive that's the level of animosity and hatred that is built up hopefully i don't know if it'll come up but i found a i think original poster from uh jesse james famous outlaw crimes so great so infamous he was wanted dead or alive one way or another Jesus, simply for saying words God his Father had given him, for doing the works of God his Father, works like healing, freeing people from oppression, is wanted dead or alive. Look at it, he's a dead man walking. Look at verse 31 there with me. Jesus, um, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus has said he'll die, hasn't he, for his sheep. And they're ready to make it happen. Because they reject his identity. Look at verses 32 and 33. That He says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? They say it's not for a good work. We want to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself God. In fact, actually the exact opposite has happened, doesn't it? They say that he being a man has made himself God. In fact, actually, the very opposite is the truth of it, isn't it? Him being God has made himself a man. And yet there is this conflict, isn't there? Completely opposing positions. Why? Why is this so? Well, and perhaps you remember this feeling too. They simply have too much to lose if what Jesus is saying is true. Maybe you remember that feeling. I certainly can. (laughs) In the moments before becoming a a Christian feeling, I don't want to become a Christian because I sense that I'm going to lose so much. I don't want this to be true. It's inconvenient. If this is true, this will change the trajectory of my life. This is going to change the things that I value. This is going to change the things that I give myself to. I don't want this to be true. They have too much to lose if this is true. If what Jesus is saying is true, if he is the shepherd of his people, there is no need for them, these religious leaders. There is no need for them. Their status, their financial security, their position, their privilege, their heritage, is all lost in a moment. Everything that they have spent their life valuing, protecting, showing off, amassing and enjoying is gone and is worthless in a moment. Jesus will be accepted. One of their great worries all the way along, and the gospel writers will tell us, is that the people actually love Jesus They may not understand everything about him, but they love him and they follow him. And they'll say, look, we have all these religious leaders who spoke to us for many years about these things. But he speaks with authority. He teaches not like them. Jesus will be accepted unless, unless they can tarnish his name. They're faced with a very stark choice. They discredit his name or he makes them obsolete. And so they try to discredit his name. They subvert the truth, the very opposite of the truth. That Jesus, though, being God, makes himself man to come and to save us. They say the opposite. Him being a man tries to make himself God when he's not. And he should be killed for blasphemy. But the truth is the opposite. The truth is that Adam, though being a man, once strained to be God, wasn't enough for Adam to be declared made in the image of God and to have the free run of all of God's creation, to be God's image bearer in the world. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him to be a priest of a kind one who would represent God in the world and bring people to God. It wasn't enough. He strained to be God. He strained to be autonomous, to be the one who made the rules. And he reached up to the tree and grasped at trying to be God, at trying to be somebody he wasn't, at trying to be somebody he wasn't made to be. And he did it at the expense of everyone else. That decision. cursed things for everyone else who ever came after. And even his own family. Jesus, though being God. Did not grasp hold of being God. And all of the privilege and all of the blessings that come with that. Instead. Jesus. God's Son decided to hold that loosely and to come and to be made a man, to become human. And why does He do that? He does it to save everybody else at His own expense. Jesus here justifies his identity by scripture he quotes for us from Psalm 82 6 and and the point there is about that actually God has said here that actually all people all humanity is actually made to be sons of God made to be God's children so why is this so hard to believe and there's a general point about humanity in general why is it you find it so hard to believe that I'm the son of God when actually scripture says here we're all sons of God but now he gets more specific And speaks of him being him whom the Father has consecrated and sent. The one who is special, the one who is specially set apart and the one who is specially sent on a special mission. He's not become the Son of God. He always was the Son of God. He's come from God. He's come to do God's work. He's come in his name. This is how John has begun the gospel for us, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the rest of the gospel, in many ways, is to prove what John has said from the very beginning of Jesus's origins. He's justified by The word, but he's also justifying his identity here by his works. Look at verse 37 and 38 there. If I'm not doing the works of the Father, then don't believe me. And he's challenging them. Can you really discredit these things, these works that he's worked, the healings, the deliverances, feeding miraculously, turning water into wine? He'll then go on to actually raise a dead man and himself be raised. He'll still the waves. Only God can do any of these things. If I do them, then believe the works. If you're not sure on the words he's saying here, then at least let the works calm your doubts, that no one but God can do these things. And yet, he's still a dead man walking. Verse 39 here. They sought to arrest him, but he escaped. And really, this is the story now up to the moment of the cross is that it's going to be this game of cat and mouse if you ever remember the ever, for a lot of you that won't be remember but if you've ever seen the cartoon wily e. coyote and the roadrunner the steeper coyote always has these harebrained plans to get a hold of the roadrunner and can just never quite manage to catch him yes. this is how it will be they'll just never quite manage to get a hold of jesus here they seek to arrest him but he escaped he will die He's embracing that. He's telling everyone that this is going to happen, but they're not in charge. It won't happen in their time and on their terms. It'll happen in Jesus's time and on his terms. And then look at this reaction. There was a reaction in the holy city in Jerusalem of confusion and division. They didn't know what to make of him. Some saying, okay, he may have some power to do some of these things, but you know what? real problem is where he gets that power from. He gets that from the dark side. And others saying, well, I don't know, because this doesn't really sound like the kind of words of a demon-possessed man. And can a demon-possessed man really heal a blind person? I don't know. Confusion and division in the city. And now look at the reaction out in the country as Jesus retreats to where John the Baptist had been ministering. And notice the acceptance out in the country. And the story doesn't end here with rejection. But what it does is to contrast the city to the country. John did no sign, we're told, but everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in his name. Out in the sticks, Jesus is accepted by people that you might not think. And people that you might not think that Jesus would be so interested to gather around him. Because we all know that reality, that the people who gather around a figure, around a leader, say something about that leader, don't they? And there could be that sense that you want the kind of people to amass uh, around them who say something really good, the great and the good. But these are people who are not well-educated. They're not cultured. They're not very wealthy. They're people who, quite frankly, society doesn't value as highly as the great and good in Jerusalem, and yet... Out in the sticks, there is a flock gathering. The story doesn't end with rejection, but it contrasts two kinds of people. Finally then, Jesus loves you like a shepherd, not a thief or a hired hand. Jesus seeks you out. Jesus finds you, he woos you, he adopts you, he cares for you, he defends and he provides for you. He loves you like a shepherd. Secondly, wolves and thieves lie about the shepherd. Do you see that there in the story? Jesus loves you like a shepherd, but wolves and thieves lie about the shepherd. They subvert the truth about Jesus for their own ends. The religious leaders do that, don't they? They don't want to lose their power, their position, their job. And they know that if people believe that Jesus is who he says he is, there's no need for them. Wolves and thieves lie about the shepherd. Thirdly, lastly, Jesus collects a strange flock of sheep. Jesus welcomes all. Jesus welcomes even those the world that looks down on doesn't think are as good as others. And Jesus welcomes those who the world has given up on. Jesus collects a strange flock of sheep, those the world would be happy to look down on, those the world would be happy to give up on. And actually you find it's those you may least expect they are the ones who respond to Jesus's call. So, and... Reflecting on this story by asking really just a simple question. If the sheep follow the shepherd because they recognize the voice, can you then hear the voice of the shepherd calling to you this morning? And will you respond to the call of the loving, good shepherd who loves you and gives his life for you? You may have life and have it abundantly. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, sing a closing song together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for having been so willing to come and to live amongst us as a good and loving shepherd. We know the truth of those many Old Testament passages that speak of bad shepherds. And we'll have experienced that in a number of different fields and and areas of life where we've experienced a, a bad shepherd, a shepherd who has been harsh and unloving, a shepherd who has not really cared about his sheep, not really cared about the people given over them, has even maybe made themselves wealthy and cared for themselves at the expense of the people given to them. Lord, we know those feelings all too well, and so Lord, we thank you that you come as the good shepherd. Lord, I pray this morning that you might help us to hear your voice and to respond. Lord, I thank you that this morning the message, and I hope at the end of it, well, how do I get in on this, isn't to try really hard, isn't to make yourself good enough to be accepted, it isn't to clean yourself up so that we might be desirable, it isn't to be able to get the best sort of possible experience and qualifications and characteristics down on a CV so that we can be deemed more valuable than the next person, but that you as a good shepherd come and find us. Sheep who don't deserve you, but whom you love and you love enough to die for. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit this morning that we might hear your voice and that we might respond. For your glory and for our good, we ask. Amen.